okay, in the bedroom, I would like to do this. I don't want to do that. That feels really clear cut. But when you ask people, well, what are your values around communication, around money, around respect, fidelity, politics, sense of humour, then people think, oh, gosh, I hadn't really thought about that. No, I've just been spending my time trying to work out how to bend myself into a sort of pretzel shape so that I could be everything that the other person wanted me to be. No, where do you want to be? What do you want to look like and how do you want to feel? Always goes back to you. And it's not about being selfish. Omega-3s contribute to a normal brain function, healthy heart and vision. Lucky for you, Minami is a brand I would wholeheartedly recommend for the family as they stand out from the rest. They are the omega-3 experts. Minami is one of the highest concentrated and pure omega-3s available in the market. So you get more omega-3 nutrition per soft gel, which means fewer capsules to swallow. They have a high concentration of 90 to 95% of omega-3 per capsule. They are free from solvents and fillers, and they have a low environmental impact, sourcing sustainable fish species from unpolluted waters of the South Pacific. I am a huge believer in the importance of omega-3 for our health. Please check the description on the show notes for the specific discount code LiveWellBeWell listeners can receive. Thank you very much, Minami, for sponsoring today's episode. A quick shout out before we get into this episode of our workshop coming your way this month. The Be Well are really excited to host a very important workshop this month with tickets starting at only £10 and our host being the host of this episode, Lucy Beresford. The workshop will focus on understanding our anxiety triggers and what we can do about them. Currently at the moment, there are so many provoking anxiety triggers, especially the state of the world that we're living in right now. It can feel very unsettling and without understanding how to manage anxiety, it can manifest into more of a severe mental health problem. We want you to help take control of your anxiety and manage it. So come to this workshop. Tickets are available online and they are only £10. Head to bewellcollective.co.uk to buy yours and we really hope we can see you there welcome to this week's episode of live well be well with your host sarah ann macklin in today's episode we look at what makes a happy and fruitful relationship whether that's with yourself with a romantic partner or even with a parent relationships are the cornerstone to our well-being I was watching a TED talk recently and it was titled What Makes a Good Life. With 41 million views, it was one of the most watched TED talks of all time. And what I found really interesting about this TED talk was that it covered lessons from one of the longest longitudinal studies on happiness. It followed people post-World War II until the day and age And what they found was that relationships was what actually drove happiness long-term. Healthy, secure relationships. It wasn't fame, it wasn't fortune, and it wasn't money, which was all on the top of the agenda for these people when they were seeking happiness. What the researchers really came to found was that secure and loving relationships were the essence of what made one's life happy. 
So in this episode, I speak to Lucy Berriford, and I absolutely love how this conversation unravels. From what starts off with talking about a happy relationship with somebody else, we really discover the deeper meaning of a relationship with oneself. So wherever you are in your relationship journey with someone else, with yourself, I feel there'll be so many insightful moments in this podcast that hopefully you can take away. As humans, the relationships we form with other people are vital to our mental and emotional well-being, and even our survival. Humans have an inherent desire to be close to other people, to connect and build relationships. Sadly, loneliness is one of the biggest mental health risks we face today. It appears that the disruption of social relationships reverberates as a threat to danger signals in our brain and that it causes the endocrine regulation, immune regulation and automic regulation. So what is the key to building and sustaining healthy long-term relationships? Today, I have the wonderful Lucy Berriford, who is an award-winning writer, broadcaster and psychotherapist. She's the author of four books, including the international bestseller, Happy Relationships at Home, Work and Play. Lucy is best known for hosting a weekly sex and relationship phone-in show on LBC Radio, where she was dubbed, I love this, the naughty Mary Poppins. Lucy now hosts Late Nights with Lucy on VT Radio and reviews the papers each month on BBC News Channel. She's also an agony aunt ITV's This Morning and a weekly panellist on the Jeremy Vine Show on Channel 5. Lucy, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. I could not think of anyone better to come on and talk everything (laughs) relationships. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for that really warm and exciting introduction because yeah, I love talking about relationships and you're giving me the chance to just do that endlessly. So I, I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's one that I've wanted to cover for a really long time and it's taken to series seven to get there. But I am absolutely thrilled with this one today. And it's going to be hard to try and not funnel this too much because it's such a broad aspect. But I guess I'm just going to go in with a big heart hitting question right at the beginning. <laughs> is there a formula for a happy relationship? That, that really is a huge question. But in a funny way, there's almost a very simple answer to that, which is that the only formula that you really need to pay attention to is the relationship that you have with yourself. Because that is the one relationship that is going to last you the whole of your life. It doesn't really matter who dances in and out of your life in the interim. You being there for you, you being respectful of you, you loving yourself is going to be the thing that will last you throughout your life. And of course, the impact that that has, that the impact of that relationship and how you treat yourself has a knock-on effect for all the other relationships in your life, whether that's your relationships with your loved one, with your intimate partner, or it could be your relationships with your friends or your colleagues. Actually loving yourself and treating yourself with respect are two cornerstones, I would argue, of making sure that your relationship is good and healthy. That actually paves the way for really beautiful, really fulfilling relationships with other people. 
Isn't that interesting? Starting off with relationships and everyone's going, what is the answer? And the answer is to have a healthy relationship with oneself. And I think it's one of those things that when we enter a relationship, we have to think we've got to be less selfish and we've got to communicate more effectively and we've got to compromise. But are we actually doing that with oneself? And I guess that is the kind of pinnacle question, isn't it? What is our relationship like with ourselves? And they always say, don't go into a relationship unless you're happy with yourself. But how do we know if we're there? You will definitely know it better in those times when you're on your own. And that can sometimes be quite a scary place. And there can be a lot of fear around that, that there might be some loneliness involved. But you can only really get to know what you like, what your preferences are, how you want to be treated, what your boundaries are, when you're actually formulating that for yourself. And obviously, you will form your boundaries when you're in relation to other people. It could be your parents or your children or, as I say, someone you're dating. But this idea, as you put it so beautifully just now, this idea that we often look to the other person to fix everything, to complete us, to be the source of all our happiness, to be the source of all our fulfillment, that's actually quite dangerous because it's such an unreliable source. The more reliable source, and it's a bit like when you have people who come to see you and they want to learn about nutrition and they want to learn how to nourish themselves and look after themselves physically and in terms of nutrition. Once you've done that, you're in a better position to be able to look for someone else or to celebrate someone else. But you only do that by learning how to do it for yourself first. Similarly, in all other relationships, am I setting a good example for myself? Am I putting up with red flags? You can only really learn that once you know what your parameters are, what your preferences are. You can do that much better if you're examining yourself not in a relationship. It is true. It can feel like a very scary place to be on your own and it can feel a very comforting space to actually share that with somebody else. But if you're not looking inward, I guess that also creates an added pressure onto that relationship, doesn't it? Because I guess you're always expecting that person to bring you happiness. Absolutely. You're expecting that person to meet all of your needs. And that's almost an impossibility. You know, the other person has not been put on this planet in order to completely exquisitely meet all of your needs. It might meet very many of them. And how lucky are you to have found someone like that? And that's why I'm always a little bit nervous about phrases like soulmate, because it sounds like actually without that person, your life would be empty or lonely or unfulfilling. But actually what you need to get to is a place where you're completely fulfilled and rather beautifully enjoying life and very excited by it and loving yourself. Oh, and there is this extra person who's bringing you all this extra stuff as well, but not the sole supply for everything, whether that is love or contentment or even support. I mean, sometimes in my clinical practice, I get a lot of people who are deeply, deeply frustrated that their partner isn't able to support them in the way that they would prefer. And that is a bit of a disappointment, yes. But actually, there's a little bit you can do in terms of educating them to sort of say, well, this, these are the moments where I often find myself triggered and I would really love you to kind of support me if I'm having a really bad day at work or I've just you know, had this 
row with my parent or my friend. Can you support me here? But actually far better that you know how to support yourself. Because again, that other person, they may be distracted. You might catch them at the wrong time. They may be bringing to your relationship some baggage from their early life, maybe previous relationships or their relationship with their parents. They can't do it. They just simply cannot support you in that way. It doesn't mean they're a bad person, but it does mean that your your expectations are too much. Your expectations are too high, which is not to say... Don't get me wrong. I think we need, there's this really awkward word in the English language, needy. We can be very negative about it. It it tends to have quite a pejorative connotation that we're too needy. But actually, there's nothing wrong with having needs. It's about, I have needs. Can this person meet them? If not, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to sit quite comfortably with that? And just allow the relationship to develop? Or do I think actually I deserve better? So again, it always goes back to you and what you want, what your preferences are. And that I think is the most beautiful thing about relationships, because it's a constant sort of learning experience. It's, it's a way to work out who am I? What do I want in the world? And where does this other person fit in all of that? And the danger is to think that they create everything that they are the sole supply of everything that you want and need. Mm. This brings in a really important area, which you actually touched upon right at the beginning, which was was boundaries and healthy boundaries for yourself and healthy boundaries in a relationship. And I think in essence, maybe this is where the communication is really, really important because if you aren't aware of your own boundaries and as you said, what you're willing to put up with, and I say put up with, that sounds very negative, but when somebody crosses that boundary, how you will react, or if you see a red flag, how you will react. I guess that's what's in essence is really important. So how can we look at boundaries for ourselves and in relationships? One of the key things is to reflect on your values. Our values give us that really core sense of the things that really matter to us and the things that are really important. And therefore, if you have a situation where you think that someone is not meeting that value, that their behavior is really affecting something that's a very sacred value to you. Let's say fidelity or respect or attitudes to money or family. Once you know what your values are, this is really important to me, in a a value ladder, this is what I would put quite high on the list. But if you begin to realize that you've got someone who is really pushing at that boundary and trying to change your perspective, change your attitude, that's the moment where you can assert yourself and say, oh, this is my preference. I believe this. I want this going forward. And it could be around transparency. It could be around communication. But as long as you know yourself well enough, you can make really good choices about whether the person in front of you shares your perspective, whether there's a bit of wiggle room, as you say, you you use the word there, compromise. That's also very important. But we don't ever want to get into a place of being a doormat. We don't want to erode ourselves so much that we've become a bit of a people pleaser in order to keep this person. I've got to do everything I can to make sure that they think I'm really funny and make sure that I fit in with everything they want to do. Well, where are you in that? And people can find that difficult in everyday life, or they might find that it just comes up maybe in the bedroom, in sort of sexual boundaries around the things that you do and don't want to do. 
that is often an example that people can see more clearly. Okay, in the bedroom, I would like to do this. I don't want to do that. That feels really clear cut. But when you ask people, well, what are your values around communication, around money, around respect, fidelity, politics, sense of humour? Then people think, oh, gosh, I hadn't really thought about that. No, I've just been spending my time trying to work out how to bend myself into a sort of pretzel shape so that I could be everything that the other person wanted me to be. No, where do you want to be? What do you want to look like? And how do you want to feel? Always goes back to you. And it's not about being selfish. I mean, I I can hear that sometimes this might come across as being very hedonistic and self-absorbed, but actually it's not. I'm actually talking to people who probably find it really hard to assert themselves and find it really hard to claim their space and what they want to do. It's not about being selfish as one word. It's about self-ish. It's all about the self. And that's a really strong place to, to operate from. So much of this, I think, comes from vulnerability as well, doesn't it? And it's one of my many favourite TED Talks. But Bene Brown is fantastic and she delivered an amazing talk around vulnerability and I guess when you are starting to look deeper within yourself which can feel a really scary place and frightening place because you might be going through some past traumas it can be very hard to really center yourself in those moments but when you do it opens up a door of vulnerability and vulnerability I think in many ways and has been termed as weakness especially to men but actually she does a really powerful TED talk around actually how it's about courage and strength. And I think that is opening up the vulnerability doors into communication, into knowing oneself. And how can we not be scared to be vulnerable and allow this to happen? That's very hard because what you're inviting is somebody in to see that side of you that you just really don't show anybody else. It's so precious. It's so raw that we spend a lot of time and energy making sure that people don't see how scared we are or how anxious we might be about something or how nervous for the future to actually strip away those onion layers and let somebody in is a really potentially scary, but obviously also potentially unbelievably rewarding dimension to a relationship because by showing that we are okay with our own vulnerability what you're also modeling for the other person sitting in front of you and I'm thinking now maybe of a you know a lover an intimate partner someone you're dating or someone you've been married to a while that person if they get to see that they get to know that you're okay with that level of disclosure so maybe that gives them the courage to be vulnerable with you. And it may surprise some of your listeners to to think that there are people who are married who haven't done that. But you can go a very long way in a relationship without actually showing who you really are. And that's why relationships can actually be a little bit unnerving because you could be with someone for quite some time, but something might happen to them in their life or something might happen to you which they can't handle. A sudden you discover another side of them that they just haven't wanted to show you. We're so scared of rejection. We're so scared that if we show our true selves, 
that's the moment at which we will be turned away. And that kind of goes back to childhood in a way, because when we are very much younger and we don't understand about self-censorship, we are just a bundle of emotion and, and all of that emotion comes out. Over time, we start to discover that some of that emotion and some of that behavior is unacceptable. In the early days, it's okay to cry as a baby. Most parents recognize that their baby will cry. But when you get to about two or three, and as you hinted earlier, particularly if you're male, there will become other messages that come your way, which is that well, big boys don't cry. So you can cry as a baby, but you can't cry as a toddler and you can't cry as a six-year-old. And over time, we start to create belief systems about what it is we have to do in order to stay in our parents' good books or perhaps in our teachers' good books. So we siphon off certain things. So we siphon off behavior, we suppress emotion in order that we don't get rejected. We don't have parents who are angry with us or we don't have a teacher that perhaps ridicules us or punishes us in some way. And by the time we get to five, six, seven, we've already learned those lessons. So when you're with someone in your 20s or 30s or 50s or 60s, and they start to say, oh, no, it is okay to cry, you'll be thinking, no way, I know how that one ends. I get rejected. It's a very gentle process of showing your vulnerability, but also respecting the other person's vulnerability. And it is a beautiful dance, but it's a very slow dance. And it does have to be taken gently because there's so much at stake. There's so much fear around rejection and abandonment. There really is. And I think that leads really nicely into attachment styles, which some people might not have heard of, some people might not be aware of, but I do think it's really important to understand what your attachment style might be in a relationship. Would you be able to kind of expand on that a little bit for me so people might understand what an attachment style is? Yes, it's absolutely fascinating. And it arises from some very pure clinical research by a man called John Bowlby, B-O-W, LBY, if people are interested in looking him up. And his theory was that the way in which we attach to our parents, but particularly our primary caregiver, which in many societies is the mother, the way that we attach to that person acts as a template for how we attach in later life, particularly in our intimate relationships. And he put forward the idea that there were three attachment styles. Other people have come along later and said, well, there might be a fourth one. And I don't want to bamboozle people with titles. I just want to really put it in simple terms, which is to say that if you are very securely attached, you will be very comfortable whether your mother is around or not. And if your mother goes away, leaves the room, let's say, you won't really worry so much because somewhere deep inside, you know that she's coming back. And that's the secure attachment. And in a way, very few people have that because there are lots and lots of other things that come into play. There might have been siblings around when you were growing up. Your mother might have been very distracted with work or maybe 
had postnatal depression or had a very demanding father. There are all sorts of ways in which that attachment can get disrupted. So what you end up having is a large number of people who are very insecurely attached. They're either very anxious or they're very avoidant. Anxiously attached people tend to really panic when you go away, which is why people fear rejection, they fear abandonment. When there is a time when maybe your partner is away for work or out socialising, then you start to panic. And the panic really has that core fear, I cannot survive on my own. Now, obviously, as a grown-up, you can, but the feeling is so powerful that it feels as bad as it did when you were a child, when you literally could not have survived on your own. So that's anxious attachment. Avoidant attachment, I like to say, is a bit like people saying, yeah, well, didn't fancy him anyway. It's the people who don't want to acknowledge their attachment because that is also quite painful. So they spend a lot of time saying, yeah, no, didn't really, didn't really notice you'd gone, actually. Whereas, in fact, deep down, what they have a similar fear of is abandonment and rejection. But they cover it up in a different way. Anxiously attached people can be quite clingy. And avoidantly attached people can be very dismissive and unavailable. And as you can imagine, if you then start a relationship with someone as a grown-up, you're having to deal not only with your own attachment style, but their attachment style as well. And anxiously avoidant, anxiously attached people will often unconsciously gravitate to very avoidant attachment people. So you get this pursuer and avoider dynamic in a lot of relationships where someone is really trying to make the relationship work and the other one is like, oh, don't really care about it. Both of those people are scared. Somewhere deep inside, they are a little scared child. And again, that comes back to that word you beautifully used earlier in this podcast about compassion. Every time you think your partner is hurting you or affecting you, don't forget that they too are are a scared little child inside. And they might be, particularly in the early days of a relationship, let's say the first year, they're having to work out what this relationship means for them and what things in their past it's triggering. So everyone has an attachment style. It's a really good idea to work out what yours is. And it's a really good idea to work out what your partner's is as well, because it will help you if there are those moments of conflict or there are those moments of trauma just to understand where the two of you are coming from it is really important isn't it because I guess that makes up the mechanics of a relationship that communication towards one another of a deeper understanding and an acceptance and again when you do understand your attachment style you are opening up another layer of vulnerability you are exposing yeah exactly and you're also opening up that layer of vulnerability to yourself which you might have not wanted to really acknowledge. I'm a 30-something woman of the world. I can do anything. I've got a great career. I am financially independent. What do you mean I'm insecure? So it can be quite hard to acknowledge that we've got these early wounds from childhood. Everybody does. Because the alternative is that we never left our mother's side. We basically would have spent the whole of our life attached via the placenta to one other person and that just never happens so everybody has that sense of that moment where they have to recognize oh it's not all about me 
I thought I was the center of the universe. I'm a baby. Everything revolves around me, which it kind of does. That's what it looks like to the baby. And then eventually they have to come to terms with the fact that that isn't what's happening. So that wound and maybe maybe that shame around carrying that wound, that sense of actually deep down what I would really love is for everyone else to go away and for me to just be completely attached to my partner via an umbilical cord and we would never leave each other and we would be each other's perfect nourishment because of course as you will know you know the placenta is that source of nutrients part of your career is very much about getting people to look at nourishment and nutrients but deep down there is that longing that actually yeah I wish I wish I could just get someone else to do that for me just like it was for a baby and that's in our head we know that's not possible but in our heart we might still carry that longing And that's that real inner child coming out, I think. And I think that's a really important area to acknowledge because I don't think as adults, sometimes we do actually listen to that inner child very much at all. And you mentioned something, a word, again, Bernie Brown speaks about it a lot, which is shame. And I find shame a really interesting topic because we all feel shame, but sometimes we're confused to why we would feel shame. And this can also be heavily linked with our self-esteem, with not feeling good enough, with our insecurities. And these all seem to be very negative in society. But can we give shame a bit of a limelight at the moment and maybe talk about some of the advantages of realizing maybe you're developing these patterns and you're feeling heavy shame and actually why they're important signals to be aware of? Because they can actually in the end, create a lot of growth within one person. But we're very scared. And actually acknowledging this does cause growth and can cause happiness. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. This is such an exciting thing for you to explore. Because yes, shame probably is in need of a rebrand. There is that sense that it's, again, something that we should be treating negatively. And and that's partly to do with society, I think. But the shame that we often feel is because of how people reacted to us, how they treated us, how they behaved. So we're actually carrying this feeling of shame that is a result of the things that other people did or said or didn't do to us, but we've internalized it. We've taken that on board. Now, the clearest example of shame, I'm going to use this because it is such an extreme to illustrate it is obviously around sexual abuse, where the child will often feel the guilt and the shame that they somehow didn't stop it or that they didn't say anything, they didn't tell anyone. But of course, as anyone who has perhaps met someone who's been abused or worked with them will know, that's not the child's fault at all. And it's a really clear example of how everything that happened to the little person wasn't their fault in any shape or form, but they still felt shame. It doesn't have to be around the topic of abuse. It can be simply around the fact that maybe you did cry a lot or maybe you weren't ever picked for the school team and you felt sort of physically inadequate in school. Or maybe you were the only person in your group to never get a Valentine's card, or maybe your parents preferred your sibling to you. There are so many ways in which we then 
internalize that as our fault, our mistake, our error. And that shame about not being perfect and not being good enough is where those feelings come from. But we again, we hide it because, as you say, self-esteem, self-worth is the other side of the coin of that fear, that belief that we are not good enough. We are ashamed that we were not enough. We were ignored. We were rejected. That must be our fault because there's no one else. That goes back to that sort of self-centered dimension of childhood. We are the center of the universe. So everything must be our fault. If our parents got divorced, that must be our fault. If something happened to a sibling, that was probably our fault. So we'd take on all of this responsibility. And out of that, we take all of this negativity that we were not enough. We didn't do it right. We weren't good. And that's why work around self-esteem and that's why the work that you do, not just in your food practice, but in this sort of greater podcast series, giving people the tools to polish their self-esteem, to take it seriously, to equip themselves with tools to really improve their self-worth and self-esteem. You do that because you're aware that the shame is unnecessary. The shame is something that you can process and forgive yourself for and leave behind. I'm really pleased that we're talking about this because in the nutrition world, I talk a lot about fiber, that it's not being talked about enough and we're not having it enough. It's not a sexy nutrient. But in the psychology side, shame seems to be this really, it does, even when you say it has a very shameful feeling about even talking about and addressing it. And when I look at self-esteem with some people within the BWA Collective, within our community, and even within my practice, asking them to do something for themselves seems to create a bit of a, I'm not quite sure what I would do. And there's this real disconnect with oneself of thinking, you're actually giving me homework to go and give myself some kind of pleasure for an hour, whether that's a facial or running a bath or taking you time. And there's this huge guilt attached to that. And it's every time I bring it up, people are kind of like, but I don't really have time to do that. And it is completely a last priority. And I think it's something that we actually, again, it's people feel selfish to do this. And there's this really interesting belief that doing something for yourself is selfish, but it isn't. It goes back to what we were saying right at the start. It's the cornerstone of everything that actually, and again, I just so love the work that you do, particularly around nutrition, because it's it's so basic as a representation of love. Yes, you feed the baby to keep it alive and help it to grow, but the actual process of holding a baby in your arms and either giving it the breast or giving it the bottle is a beautiful form of love as well. And you're absolutely right. It's as if people have decided that showing themselves some love is such a low priority, whether it's in terms of time. I haven't got time to do that. How long did you spend on Twitter today? How long did you spend doom scrolling through Instagram? Well, that 20 minutes could have been a 20 minute meditation or a a quick shower followed by a gorgeous massage with some maybe some new body lotion, which I like cocoa butter. It's $4.99 from Superdrug and other chemists are available. But, you know, we're not talking spending oodles of money here, but sometimes it can also be around money. There's a, a vaguely sort of anorectic position of, 
I'm not worthy of spending that money on myself. And it could be an indulgence. It could, as you say, it could be a facial, or it could be spending money on seeing someone like you or me. There are a lot of people who really resist that because they don't love themselves enough. They don't value themselves enough. Again, it doesn't have to be about money. It could be about, am I going to give myself that 20 minutes in my lunch break to actually just go and walk around the block, to give myself a bit of a stretch, to feel my body connecting with the pavement, to maybe see if I can see some magpies in the town. It's how can I stimulate my senses, which is a way of really inhabiting your body and loving your body with no money involved, with no, again, need for anyone else to do that for you. How can I do it for myself? You probably do this in terms of what beautiful meals can I cook for myself from scratch? Takes 15 minutes, three ingredients, but just the care and the love that I'm giving to that meal is then some care and some love that I'm giving to myself. That's nourishment. That's not selfish. That's self-care. It's the first kind of needs in the hierarchy of needs, really, isn't it? It's that looking after you've got your shelter, you've got your food. And I think it's very hard to carve that out for oneself when we live in this constantly stimulated environment. It's so much easier, as you said, to go onto Twitter or to distract our mind into something else that we're feeling like we should be busy as opposed to actually being with oneself, and whether that is going for a walk, as you said, taking a shower and doing some stretches. Because I also believe there's a fear of being with oneself from the thoughts that could arise. We're quite easily able to block those out with other stimulating environments, such as our phone or such as turning on the TV. And again, that is creating and blocking a relationship with oneself. Yes. And actually, while you were talking, I was thinking of another version of that, which happens to people. And I see it a lot in my practice, which is instead of doing that for themselves, they're very, very good at doing that for other people. The people pleasers. Exactly. So there's a people pleasing dimension. But then there's also that sense of over loving, busy trying to think of ways in which I can show my loved one how much I care for them. I'm busy planning meals. I'm busy crafting the most witty text or Instagram message that I can send them. I'm constantly thinking about how they're feeling. How are you? It's all about the other. It's all about how that energy is projected onto the outside person. And I think when you said to me, you know, how can you pay attention to yourself? How can you set boundaries for yourself? What are the signs? One of the signs I would argue is if you find yourself doing too much for the other person, or maybe even the group of people, are you always the person that organises things in your friendship group? How reciprocal is your relationship? That could go back to attachment style, but I think it is also what you just mentioned there, that actually to sit with yourself, to lie in the bath as beautifully scented as that bath may be, actually, if you sat in that bath with your feelings, what would come up? What are you scared might come up? Because now that there are as many amazing podcasts as yours, the temptation is to listen to a podcast. The temptation is to be always filling your headspace with something. But actually, what would it really feel like to lie in your bath or to go for a walk and to have no third distraction, to not be listening to that voice note message that someone sent you on WhatsApp, to not be trying to think, because that bilateral stimulation of 
being in a walking or swimming can be a really useful place to get to the core of how you feel as opposed to trying to fill the gap by talking to someone else and meeting their needs too much. What about your needs? What about your self-care? Absolutely. That is one question I think we don't ask ourselves enough. And I guess going on from that, there's a couple of things that I would love to talk about. It's the ebbs and the flows of a relationship. So when you are in a relationship or maybe you've been in one for a couple of years, maybe there's people listening to this that have had relationships through COVID, through the pandemic, which obviously heightens a lot of intensity. How do we check in with the relationship and also ourselves when you do have those patterns that might be I don't know if drier is the right word, but less content in a relationship. How do we make sure that we keep those relationships communicable and exciting? And also the acceptance that sometimes relationships aren't always what we project in the first six months to 12 months of a relationship. How do we become content with that growth of a relationship? There are some beautiful things there I sort of want to unpack. I think, yes, that first observation that you came to last was this idea that it's never going to be the honeymoon period for the whole of your relationship. That very unusual experience of meeting someone and getting to know them and revealing yourself to them is both real, but also there's a lot of fantasy there. There's a lot that we project onto the other person because we just can't simply know them. Even if they give us lots of information and even if we stay up till four in the morning talking, as often happens in those early days, we can't inhabit their complete life and we can't inhabit their mind. So it is about recognising that relationships are for the long term. They're about an understanding of how they shapeshift over time And it's probably about being alert for all those different moments, which can also include those moments where it becomes, yeah, really dry or quite stale. That that can happen when you don't give enough attention, when you don't give enough priority to the relationship because other things might come in. So what I noticed during the pandemic was that couples that did get together, probably their relationship accelerated more quickly because they were having perhaps more time communicating they were either living together people who perhaps had got together just before lockdown and thought let's stay let's stay and see what that's like or maybe people who yeah just there was so much less going on that they ended up spending more time talking to each other and getting to know each other they are probably in a situation now where they need to try and work out what the reality really is now that we have to go to the supermarket and you have to go to the workplace and I now have to go and see my parents you know how do you create a reality where all these other distractions are coming into play? How do you keep some focus on your relationship? But I think the other thing to say is that communication is always the key, but it goes back to that sense of, well, what do I want? Because if you're beginning to feel perhaps a bit unsatisfied or a bit unfulfilled, or maybe there are some exciting things you'd like to try, that's all very well and good. But how does your partner feel? So you need to communicate that. You need to find out Are they similarly a bit bored? Are there things that they wish that we could do? So I always think that it's quite good to have an audit where you actually sit down together, maybe every six months. I'd love it to be three months, but some people can find that a bit too intrusive. No sooner have you had one conversation and started to implement some things in the next audit, really. But certainly every six months to kind of create 
a moment for that conversation, some time for that conversation. So don't have this conversation just as you're pulling into the parking space as you're about to go into the supermarket, but set aside some proper time, maybe agree to cook some supper and have a meal together when you know you won't be disturbed or maybe go for a long walk and talk about what you like, what your other half likes, what you'd like to do more of, and really lean into some feelings. You know, what is it that I do that you really love? Can I tell you about what it is that you do that I really love? Create those moments where you celebrate each other and the things that you bring to the relationship, as well as navigating and discussing the things that you might do more of in the future, or maybe try some new things. But definitely have those conversations where it's about what do I want and how do I feel? Obviously, giving your partner the opportunity to say what they think and feel as well. There's actually something called the five minute rule where you and this can work for beautiful conversations as well as disagreements where you speak for five minutes and then your partner reflects back to you what they have heard you say and then you swap roles and they get to speak for five minutes and then you reflect back. So it's less about saying, no, 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 that's not right at all. Oh, no, no, you said this. You give each other the breathing space to say what you're really feeling, safe in the knowledge that they are just going to receive it. They're not going to criticise it, contradict you, trump you, come up with their own version. No, they're just going to hear you. And feeling heard in a relationship is, for many people, their biggest dream. I just want to feel heard. I just want to feel that my partner understands me. It's a simple answer, but it's one of the hardest things I think we struggle with in relationships is is feeling heard. There can be a lot of frustration, I feel, around that one part particular. And it brings me on to the relationships that, well, essentially the relationships that bring us great joy are the ones where we're more conscious, the ones where we're quite vulnerable, the ones where we do have these kind of sit down every three months and be really open with one another. But lots of relationships sadly don't go down this avenue. And lots of relationships can become toxic, can become argumentative, can become actually a very lonely place. I think sometimes we can find ourselves in relationships where even though we're with somebody, we can feel so alone. How can we navigate through these or actually have the strength to say, this is not serving me? Because I think that's a really sad place that many of us can experience in relationships. Certainly, again, it goes back to what are your values? Why are you lonely? What are the sacred values that are very much a part of your identity that are not being met here? And are they things that are workable? Is it enough that you could say to your partner, I need a little bit more of this, or I'd love a little bit more of that? Or as you say, has the situation become so toxic that actually you're beginning to realise this person will never be able to be there for me or perhaps they've betrayed you in a very concrete way and you're trying to work out how to sit with that or live with that. And some people can. I mean, that's what my TED Talk is about, infidelity to stay or to go because so many of my clients were grappling with that. But if you've made that decision somewhere in your being that this is no longer bringing out the best in you, that's what I always think relationships should be about. It's like 
I'm a better person because I'm in this relationship. And if you're lonely or you're miserable or you're frightened, those are probably the moments where you need to think about leaving. And therefore, that then becomes about, have I got the strength to do this? Have I got the support network around me? Or do I at least have a core value that I can say I am leaving for this reason? I'm leaving because I am not respected. I am not heard. And if you identify that core value, I think you're less likely to have regret in the future because leaving, well, making a choice to leave is one thing. Actually leaving is obviously a very different thing. Once you leave, in an ideal world, you want to feel that you won't regret your decision. And we know after heartbreak that can be very tempting to say, oh, but they were just so amazing when they did this. And when we, every time I hear that song... I get taken back to all the lovely moments. But actually, if you hold on to the fact, yeah, but the reason I left was because I was lonely or the reason I left is because I was scared. The reason I left was I felt very unheard. That gives you that strength in a way to say, okay, that's the reason I did it. And even though I haven't got as much going on in my life at the moment, I know that I did this thing for me. It was a self-respect decision, which again goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, if you can treat yourself with respect and work out whether you are being disrespected in many ways, that's the moment at which it becomes a boundary for yourself and it's it then becomes a bit of a no-brainer. It's really interesting and it does fascinate me how much relationships impact in our overall health and well-being and how they can be such drivers for a happy life increase in our blood pressure. I mean, there's been studies to show that it impacts in our immune system, cardiovascular outcomes, on our gut health. And I think, you know, all of these factors are so important to be aware of because you are, and time for me, I think, personally, is the most sacred thing. And relationships require time, which you can also get so much joy from. But if something is not serving you, it can be very hard. Again, shame comes into this conversation to actually acknowledge that the time that you're investing is not time that's serving you. And it can be a really harsh reality for some people. And some people can take years to get to. Some people can make that decision quite quickly. But there is that fear, isn't there, of heartbreak? Because I think hopefully many people who have listened to this have Maybe it was a first love or have experienced some type of broken heart. And another great TED talk I love, definitely look at How to Heal a Broken Heart. It's fantastic. But heartbreak, it's a real thing, isn't it? A broken heart. It's a real impact on our well-being. And and I say this from a personal point of view that my great aunt and uncle, you might find this quite fascinating, met when they were 15 and they actually never spent a night apart in their entire life. And when she passed away in her 90s. They lived to a very ripe old age. I mean, they grew up in Wales in a very, very working class background. And I remember going up to see them, had to go to the loo outside in the coal mining village. And she passed away. And within 24 hours, her husband passed away. And the only thing we could actually think is that it was a broken heart of the reason why he passed. And so when you look at it like that, you know, their life was one of the happiest, they had nothing, but was one of the most fruitful because there was so much love and warmth there. But in the end, you know, when she passed, he passed very quickly. And I think, 
you know, being aware of the pain that we might endure going through this. Many of us can kind of say there's many more fish in the sea and, you know, you've got your best life to come and, you know, don't think about it. That person wasn't worth it. But I think it is also really important to see how you're feeling and sit with that and observe it. I'd love your advice for anyone listening. I think it's about recognising that heartbreak is arguably the most painful thing to go through. And that's partly because so many people go through it that it has almost become trivialised. As you say, well-meaning people will say they obviously weren't right for you. When one door closes, another door opens, plenty more fish in the sea. And at that moment, you don't want to hear any of that. You want your partner back. You want that person back in your life. And it feels like physically something is literally being taken out of your body. It is that painful and that raw. And it is a grief. I always advise my clients and patients who are going through this to see it as a proper grief. And at least if you do that, you're acknowledging it. It doesn't really matter whether your your friends or your family can't really support you in in the same way as they would have done if it actually had been a proper bereavement because somehow in our brains we're like oh okay no I can understand that no that's a proper loss I can support my friend through that whereas heartbreak is very much about processing those five stages of grief which are and not everyone will have all those five stages but certainly anger denial confusion a lot about why 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 you can often find yourself saying that word over and over again. Unfortunately, the other cliche, which is that time is a great healer, is also very true. And you won't always feel as bad as you feel right now. It will change. And sometimes I've heard people say, I don't want it to change, because actually, by staying here in the painful space, that means I'm still in connection with the person who's gone. I'm still thinking about them. I'm still working out where they are on social media. They're still in my life. So why would I want to kind of get to the point where they're not in my life? But the interesting thing is that at some point that will happen. It's just that none of us really know that. Distractions are good, but above all, just allow yourself the time and the space to really really grieve that loss. Because, as you say, you have invested time in it. I wondered whether what you were suggesting was that sometimes we can invest a lot of time in relationships. And when they end, we kind of beat ourselves up for having spent that time and that energy in that relationship. Or maybe we thought it was over, but we kept going for a little bit longer, or maybe a lot longer. But I don't think you should ever beat yourself up for trying to make love work. I mean, love is the most beautiful thing. And if you really, really care for someone and you really wanted to make it work, despite all the odds and maybe even despite all the red flags and the signs, it's far better to be the person who loves than the person who can't love. And that then obviously brings you to the moment where maybe somebody has walked away from you or told you it's over, or maybe they've done an even worse thing, which is that they haven't told you it's over, but they've just ghosted you, which is inappropriate. And whatever we might say, you know, that person, they're just not into you. It's true. Ultimately, you want to be with someone who wants to be with you. And even though you've decided, but I want to be with that person. Yes, 
that is really true and you did make that decision and it's that that you're going to have to let go of that's what you're grieving the fact that you really believed this person was right and eventually for a whole host of reasons you will get to a place where you will want something better for yourself and that's where the self-love comes in I can't stress this enough about heartbreak don't try to get there too quickly don't try to say gotta love myself he or she was definitely the wrong person I've got to get to that point no you will get there don't rush that bit but just allow yourself to mourn the loss of either what you had or what you thought you had or what you wanted to have because it's only really by doing that and proving to yourself that you can survive that loss, that you can then go forward into your next relationship, because there will be a next relationship, with the courage that you can love again, as if you hadn't been hurt. That's the goal. And it's hard to do, you know, people who've come to me say, well, I, my partner betrayed me, or my partner died. Or they ghosted me. I've had a horrible wound. How do I get through this? How can I ever love again? I will never love again. It's always that awful feeling, isn't it? I'm never going to find anyone. We all have this innate reaction to that. And I think, I'm not sure if you've heard of the emotional change, the Sarah graph of emotions, but it's something that I find a really interesting reference point where it's quite interesting. It's called Sarah. It's not... (laughs) (laughs) I didn't come up with this, by the way, but I was told this once and it stayed with me ever since. And I find it really interesting that the S stands for shock. So when something happens, you're all very shocked. And I guess that's a state where you might feel intense emotions or might not be able to figure out your emotional states. And then you hit anger. So you kind of go a bit deeper and you become very resentful. And then you kind of hit an all-time low of, of rejection. And I think that's probably one of the most painful parts of that. And then it kind of goes up more towards acceptance and you're accepting of the situation and maybe more reflective of the situation. And then in the end, it comes out to to more hope, which is what you were saying, that when you actually find the right person, you've gone through these stages and you feel quite hopeful for your next relationship as opposed to I've got to find somebody now and this is obviously wrong with me and I've got to fix this part and it's more of a continuum of time. In the end, you actually feel quite flourished and hopeful of the next stage and I think that's a really wonderful place to to get to but as you said, that takes time, takes a lot of time. What a beautiful description. I mean, I hadn't heard of Sarah, but it's the perfect acronym, actually. It takes you through those five stages. And of course, within the hope is that sense of, I am going to be okay on my own. That, That level of hope, that actually it's all is well. To allow the path that is meant to come, to allow that to unfold, is obviously a quite a wise space. I think it comes from sort of Buddhist philosophy, first and foremost, but that sense of, I am going to be okay, because I'm going to be okay with everything. It doesn't really matter what happens. It was meant to happen. That's sort of the acceptance and the hope all braided together. And we will individually get to that. And you're right, you have to go through the other extreme pain as well. And I've often thought that actually, you know, employers should be slightly more enlightened, that the breakup, I mean, I can (laughs) This is so mad. But when I broke up with my very first boyfriend, I was a Saturday girl at Marks and Spencer. 
and I was on the till. You had to be on the till for an hour and then off the till for an hour. Well, I was just basically taken off the till because I was sitting crying. I couldn't not cry. And they just, they dealt with it really beautifully. They, they said, actually, I think you need to go home. <laughs> and I think because they acknowledged that actually, even though I was a teenager and it was a first love and they could see that the pain was really true and really real. And I think more people were given permission to have some time off after proper heartbreak. They might deal with it a little better instead of thinking, I've got a soldier on, got to put a brave face on it. Interesting you say that, actually. Isn't it Ryland who's just had 12 weeks off from the BBC because of his breakup of his marriage? And I guess they have obviously acknowledged that's really impacted him and, and his one performance at work, but also his overall mental and physical health. And so they've actually given him a 12-week rest period. Absolutely. Is it really important conversation? Because there's been so many times, I think, when people have just gone into work the next day or put on that brave face and inside they're, they're broken. And Yeah. It's called a broken heart for a reason, because not only has something broken, a relationship is no more, but inside you feel broken. Mm. And that self-care of how to look after yourself in those moments, again, is really, really key to just acknowledge that this is not where you want to be. Yeah. And in order to get to a better place, you're going to have to go through that that forest of um, of pain. The only thing to say is that you will come out the other side. And you've got to get back to your relationship with yourself, which I think has kind of been the essence throughout this podcast, is put all of that energy into yourself and your own relationship. And something that I think is becoming very apparent from last year Many books have been written on this that I've seen come out in this year in 2022. Lots of things on Instagram and Twitter and social media and articles is the word manifestation. And I can't leave this podcast without talking about this. <laughs> because as you know, because you very kindly came to the podcast live, a question was actually asked on manifestation. And I guess as a psychologist, you picked up on this quite intuitively. And I think it's something that I've been reading a lot and seen an influx of people wanting to manifest this perfect life or thinking actually well I might not need to go and do all of these things if I manifest it it will just come to me which I also think can be quite a scary place and also you lose a lot of control because you're not actively going out and changing specific ways or making interventions because you're kind of hoping by saying and manifesting it something's going to come to you and it can be very in line with relationships manifesting a perfect woman or man or individual within your life or manifesting this perfect relationship I think it's a really important one just to cover before we talk about really actually wrapping up relationships, because I think there can be many amazing positive qualities in manifestation where we can understand what is important to us, but there can also be quite a negative part of it as well. Yes. I mean, I was absolutely fascinated by that moment in the podcast live because I was sitting in the audience. A question was asked of Kimberly about manifestation, and there was a lot of laughter because in a way, I got the impression she wasn't a big fan, but she wasn't a fan because some of the negative connotations, and that's partly to do with the fact that if you are manifesting, you are then basically saying, okay, it is all down to me. It's all about the energy that I'm putting out there. It's all about leaning in. And then if it doesn't happen, what does that do to your sense of self or 
does it make you feel incredibly negative about your capacity? I haven't tried hard enough. I think it runs the risk of fueling that negative sense that we are not enough, that we haven't tried hard enough or we've been doing it wrong. It's our fault. And I will do a lot in the world to try to make sure that people don't feel that about themselves. But what I then noticed, because I was in the audience, was how the topic of manifestation then became a jumping off point for so many people in the audience about relationships. Some people are hoping to manifest, you know, a bigger media platform or a bigger career, but the majority of people, what they want to manifest is the person in their life who they think will either complete them or who will be the person of their dreams. In effect, they want to identify all the attributes and a focus on that. So I was just really struck by, again, how much of a priority people were putting on this other person to call them into their lives or pull them into their lives. And as a result, how much of a gap it obviously had created in their life that they were so urgently trying to call the other one in. In fact, there are some books I I gather that are calling in the one, I think is the name of a book. And laws of attraction in particular are very much around getting yourself into a state where this person can come in. But funnily enough, if you read that material or you go onto websites around manifestation, they're saying the same thing as you and I have been saying in this podcast for the entire time, which is love yourself first. Have a great life yourself first. Yes, by all means, buy a double bed and in anticipation of the time when that partner can sleep in your bed with you and hold you in their arms. That is rather beautiful. But buy the double bed so that you can have a fabulous night's sleep with a great mattress and you can stretch because that's a different energy that you're putting out there. Now, if the manifestation world wants to describe that as something that will call your partner in, that's probably their prerogative. But for me, it's more about how can I love my life? How can I love my life? I'm going to buy that big bed, not because I think it will bring me this other person, but because I want to have a really amazing bed or I want to treat myself to really beautiful linen. It's a different mindset, I think. So manifestation is probably useful in as much as it gives you Again, that sense of who am I, where am I at, what are my goals, and what do I want to call in? But ultimately, how can I love my life? How to love your life has got to be the preeminent thing. And in a way, that manifestation, that is definitely within your gift. Because it's about choosing joy. It's about walking away from people who hurt you. It's about identifying your core values and It's about finding people like you and podcasts like yours that enrich people's lives, that their time is spent beautifully in growth. I feel like that's such a wonderful way to end this podcast. I don't (laughs) want to ask another question. I feel like, yes, manifest your own energy, one with yourself. I love that connotation of buying a double bed because there's room for growth, but actually, You're not sitting there every day thinking, please let somebody be in this bed next to me who is X, Y, and Z. You are doing that for yourself. And there is then opportunity for somebody else equally as wonderful as yourself to come by and share that with you. So 
A question that I love to ask everybody, and one that I'm really intrigued by to ask you, is what does live well, be well mean to you? I love that question. I think that it is very much about that focus on self-care and self-love. There's a line in Hamlet, much quoted, which is, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day that thou canst not be false to any man. It kind of makes me well up when I say it, because my mum used to say it to me. And I think what she was really saying was, just be true to yourself, and obviously that means being true to your values, but also look after yourself. Eat well, be well, seek out joy, be kind. And that's all that's needed. You were talking about your aunt and uncle who clearly didn't have very much in the way of material goods, but they had each other and they had each other for the whole of their lives. And that's a really beautiful place. So for me, it is about that focus on self-worth and self-care and everything else will follow on from that. Mm. It's all about the self. I think that's such a lovely connotation of this whole podcast where relationships are normally sort of the other person and really in essence it's about you and it's about oneself and to really work on our own relationship I would say anyone listening to this I'm going to do it myself included hopefully Lisa you'll do it too but to do something for yourself today tomorrow this week which is solely for you that doesn't impact you educating yourself further or learning something that you feel that you need to or doing something for someone else doing something because it just simply brings you joy and I think for some people they might struggle with what that could be because it could be that normally they read something because they want to know more about a subject but do something equally just because it makes you feel content and makes you smile and I think that is really really important beautifully put (laughs) so Lucy where can people find you if they want to contact you or I mean you're on many different channels of where they can listen to you so please do share this information with our listeners yes my website is lucyberesford.com and I'm also on twitter at lucyberesford so it'd be lovely to interact with people there and I have a TED talk so that's on the TED platform so anybody that wants to get in touch it'd be really beautiful to know what what they thought of our conversation because I know that you and I think we could have talked for for (laughs) hours on end so it would be lovely to know what people took away from that and to start a sort of a self-care movement and that's what the Be Well Live Well Collective is really all about from my observation it's about taking care of yourself. It started off obviously from a very rigorous and hard industry but it has applications um, more widely so yeah love to hear from people absolutely I feel that there's going to be a lot of responses to this a more in-depth podcast next time on another area of relationships I feel like we only covered the top line but I guess both you and I really wanted the takeaway to be about understanding the relationship with oneself and I feel like we really delved into that so thank you so much for coming on Lucy it was wonderful to hear your wealth of knowledge Always love chatting to you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. 
If you did enjoy this episode, please do leave us a review and a rating on whatever platform you're on. It really helps spread the word and show more engagement with you guys because at the end of the day, that is so important to us at the BY Collective. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.